Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. One of the things we did for many years is we kind of hacked it to make emails fully transparent. We set up a number of different email lists and said, CC this email list. Basically just categorize the emails of what you're discussing. And then the thing was like everyone in the company was on every list. It's more You invented a, Slack channels basically with email. Basically, yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan and I'm joined by my co-host Rodney Evans. Hey y'all. On today's episode, we're going to talk about transparency what we share and what we don't share and why. But before we unpack that, let's uh, do a little opening up ourselves with a check-in round. Yeah, let's uh, let's kick off this episode like we do all the others with a check-in. The question <laughs> for today is, what song are you listening to on repeat right now? And what do you love about that song? So this is kind of an easy one because I go deep with songs and I just get stuck in loops. And right now I have a, a fairly older song called um, Loud Pipes from a band called Ratatat that is like an all electric instrumental kind of groovy song that I just love to work to. And it kind of zends me out. So that's that's for sure the answer. Nice. What about you? Nice. For me, it is a cover I discovered recently of Jealous Guy by the Beatles, covered by Donny Hathaway. And the vocals on it are so lush. Donny sounds so much like Stevie Wonder. And it is the particular genre I love of songs that I already adored, reimagined by people in unconventional and neat ways. And I cannot stop listening to it. My favorite thing is a cover of a song that I don't really like where I like the cover. Totally. That's like absolutely the the best thing that can happen. I'm into that. Okay, so today's topic is transparency or how we share information. And I guess I'd like to start just by asking you, what does this mean? So I like to think about transparency as in the information space generally, how, you know, what what we know and don't know, what we share and don't share. Mm-hmm. And um, this notion has become more popular recently, I think, as we deal with more complex, more dynamic markets, et cetera, where people are like, yeah, who should have the information and who shouldn't? Mm-hmm. And maybe historically the answer was, you know, we want to keep it under lock and key and only certain people can know. And it seems like now we're moving towards a pattern of, maybe people should know more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to go right to the counter argument, which <laughs> is always, if we open everything up, then people will be overwhelmed by information, drinking from a fire hose. They won't know what's important for them to actually see. How do we head off that first before we even get into what we could be doing? 
Well, I think that it's a reasonable fear, right? Because we are swimming in so much information. I mean, I have trouble keeping up with my own email and Slack and Twitter and all that. So, And then not to mention the amount of data that we're producing as a culture now every year. So I mm-hmm. think it's a reasonable pushback. I think the twist is that most organizations are used to pushing information out to everyone and having everything be coming at them. Mm-hmm. And they're not used to creating like an information hygiene where it's there if you need it. So if you can imagine the same argument being made about libraries, what if someone was like, we can't have all the books in the library. Won't people be overwhelmed and, and just have their whole day interrupted by books? Right. It's like, no, the books are there when you need them. And I think right. that's at the basis of this idea of push versus pull, where push information is you know, in your inbox, in your face, at the all hands. It's hard to avoid. It's going to interrupt you. And pull information is like, when you need it, it's there. And I think the advocates of transparency are pushing for that kind of access. It's the kind of access like, do you want to know what I'm working on? There's a place you can look. Do you want to read the document? There's a place you can look. It's different than saying everybody should share everything vocally, loudly, and in your face all the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. You hit two important points. One is I go back often to Dave Snowden's thinking about learning and consumption and his principle that nobody knows anything until they need to know it. And so this idea that you make things available so that I can go get it when it's relevant to me versus assume that by pushing me something, I'm going to internalize that and then bring it up with perfect recall at the moment that I need it, I think is a flip that's important. more just in time. Exactly. The other piece is just a clarity around roles. So there are a lot of people in a lot of organizations who manage teams, quote unquote, and think that a big part of their job is to cascade important messages and provide the context that their team needs in order to interpret those messages correctly. And I think there are a few flaws, actually, in that thinking. Mm -hmm. Again, there's the timeliness of it, but there's also just the idea that a manager can anticipate what you would specifically need around that messaging in order to interpret it the way that they want you to interpret it. So that connects to an idea for me that I wanted to ask you about, which is this idea of information as power. Mm -hmm. So you've obviously been in some systems where that's probably true in your past. Talk about how that looks and why that is. And then what, what, what's the rethink about information where you stop thinking of it as something that you have to hoard or something that kind of gives you job security? Like what have you seen and how do you think about that shift? When you work in a system where information is hoarded, a couple of things are usually going on. One is that there is a in-group, out-group ethos that is being reinforced by who has access to what. Right. And you see this in the most adolescent ways show up where <laughs> someone will get forwarded an email, look at the distribution and say, Why wasn't I copied on that to begin with? Either by status or by right or by inclusion, I should have been. And take deep, real offense at being excluded. Right. So we use these, we use communication and information as signal of whether we're like in, like in the know, in the club, in the crowd, in the group of favorites from the manager. I think that's part of it. And then there's also just a thing in bureaucracy or just in complexity where you can't possibly know all of the things about all of the things. And in a network, the people who are the nodes tend to be the people who have information. So in a traditional power structure, we hold that at the top and we do so in a way that is 
constructed and reinforced very explicitly. In a network, we do that within nodes, and it's done much more informally, but it's equally powerful. You know who to go to in a big company if you want to find out what is really going on. And those people have an incredible amount of power. So I think information is always power. It's just a question of how it's used and how it's formally reinforced. I just feel like I've seen so many cases where we come into an organization and then you meet someone somewhere near the edge who's like, my job is safe because I know how to unplug the server. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like right. very specialized, very job specific and and sometimes project specific. And also the idea that like, uh, if we expose what we're working on, the leaders will shit on it. Yeah. Right. So like the project team is like, I'm not sharing the state of, you know, the project in progress right. when it's not perfect. Because if I do, 15 different VPs are going to come give me reasons why it's messed up and why I have to change it or tweak it. So I'm going to wait until it's perfect or even better till it's done. Right. And then I'm going to share this, you know, version of it. Yeah. It does create a lot of security. And I led a project at a prior firm that took about a year and it was a primary research project. Like it wasn't one of those projects where you go, oh, it was a year because it was full of shit. This was like we were doing primary research and coming to a validated model around Mm -hmm. various leadership behaviors and skills. And I knew when I left there that no one else in the building was going to be able to make use of what became (laughs) a 400 page research paper except me and one person on my team who also left. And candidly, I was kind of like, yes, you you guys. Yeah, I felt important. And also I just had it. it The leverage gave me leverage where when I was leaving a bad situation that I wasn't that happy about, I was kind of like it was kind of a little parting F (laughs) you to those people because we had all invested a lot of time and money, but I was the only one who would actually see any benefit from that in the long term. So I feel like we've uh, covered fairly quickly the reasons why it's (laughs) happening and why we sort of, you know, occasionally enjoy hoarding information. Yeah, like sort of gleefully. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say about the the shift? You know, why make the shift, right? If all those things are true, what is the what's the factor now that's changed that means that we have to think differently about it? Yeah, sure. So. We hear very often that we want intelligence-led decisions. We want customer at the, at the center of experience. We want to be designing for our market or for our end user. You just cannot do any of those things if you're not looking at real data. And taking a lot of the interpretation out of information, not holding it at the top or in the center and letting every person who has access to it, put their spin on it. And instead, having a broader set of people look at a broader set of information and collectively make sense of what that means in terms of steering our business is kind of the only move because there's too much data to do it otherwise. Yeah, that makes sense. What would you add to that? Well, I think the what it brings up to me is just the context shift. So if you assume that the market is has more players, more going on, more dynamics, more complexity. If internally you have more going on, there's just this reality that in complexity, you need 
more sensors and you need mm-hmm. more interpretation to make sense of how the market's evolving or you miss it, right? Some big thing happens, the market shifts, customers want something new, something new is possible and mm-hmm. you missed it. And mm-hmm. we see this over and over again with ride sharing and the taxi commission. I mean, it just happens right. over and over where we miss something big. And I think the way to not miss is to say, let's move from the need to know basis idea, which is like, because the world doesn't change very fast and because information is power, we're going to localize it in these pockets and you need to know. And that's part of like the initiation into the power structure. Now we're saying actually power kind of useless against the onslaught of complexity and and how much is going on. What we really need is insight. And insight is going to come from lots of different people with lots of different perspectives looking at information and saying like, oh, I see something over there. I see a connection. I see a pattern. I see a thing we can borrow from this team. I see something that we can leverage that another team created. And you just don't get that when it's all under lock and key. Yeah. You're talking about the power of the hive mind. Exactly. One of my favorite examples is when you look historically at Wikipedia versus Microsoft Encarta. And Wikipedia was this early thing that was obviously multiplayer, open source, freely moderated and contributed to. And then you had this very traditional bureaucracy who said, we're going to anticipate what the world needs to know about everything and create (laughs) the world's first digital encyclopedia. And like, nobody talks about that one, but Wikipedia is alive and well. That's what you want to create inside of your system is a hive mind or or a repository of some kind that diverse and divergent thinking is contributing to and arguing about and moderating and making sense of in an ongoing way. Totally. So in any company, there are going to be things that are secret and that are confidential and that are private. We talked about that in our communication episode with Deirdre. (laughs) What are some of the things that you think really should be kept under lock and key? And what are some of the things you think people could challenge themselves to think more expansively about? I think deciding the answer to those questions is part of the work. It's part of the work for each company and context to to decide. But I would say, generally speaking, there are going to be things that are legally obligated to be secret or private. And Mm -hmm. the the government and the country that you do business in will help you understand what those are. (laughs) And I think, think, you know, we have to, one of the things we have to do is just accept constraints. And so if that's a constraint we operate under, it's a rule everybody has to play by. And so it's table stakes. And so I think mm-hmm. that, that it's quick to make a list of those things and say like, all right, we can't we can't share certain kinds of information. Customer information, for example. If you're a right. company with 10,000 customers, you can't just blast all their data out in the universe, m- much to the chagrin of most internet startups these days. <laughs> so, you know, so I think that is, uh, that's a boundary. The second thing would be, um, you know, if there's information that we think is, is potentially useless or not useful enough. And I think through trial and error, we can figure out what that is. So for Mm -hmm. example, do you need to know how many hours I slept last night? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe, but probably not. And in fact, the work, the work of collecting and sharing and documenting and trapping that is going to be worth, it's going to take more than you're going to get back. And so I think Mm -hmm. for each group, rather than to just guess what's valuable, if you have a suspicion Start sharing that piece of information. If it doesn't add value, if it doesn't change decisions, then take it away. And then when it comes to the things that are just sensitive, I think my my position is I would advocate for being a little bit more radical. Like I, I do think that we can choose to share almost everything that is quote unquote sensitive mm-hmm. in in search of 
more alignment, less bias, more insight, more progress. Like I think you can take the stigma out of almost any kind of information by just sharing it enough and then dealing with some of the emotional consequences and then being like, all right, that's not such a big deal anymore. And now we have all the insight that came from from that uh, symmetry. Right. To your first point about what is useful and what is not useful, I would also just take a user-focused filter on that. And if you're going to make that information available, then also have a way to see who's pulling it down and what the usage actually looks like. And if everybody wants to know how much Aaron sleeps, maybe that is valuable data (laughs) or that's a, a metric that we should be looking at. And if there are things that you're sort of putting in the well and nobody's coming and scooping it out, then maybe it's irrelevant. It's almost like product management. Exactly. Like see, see what people are downloading. Um, to your point about sensitive information, the one that of course I love to talk about is compensation. Yes. I've been working in and around compensation for almost 20 years. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to imagine because I'm a child. Uh, and it's just the place that people go like, yeah, 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 transparency, yeah, but absolutely not on no money. Chance. No effing way, right? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the pros of transparent comp because I am really high conviction about making compensation transparent in organizations for a whole variety of reasons. Yes. I want to hear what your numero uno reason for transparent comp. I think the the number one reason is probably just that if you're trying to create optimization where there's fairness and balance, mm-hmm. it's just a faster way to do it. It creates a kind of a systemic accountability and and um, the ability for people to see where, you know, what is going on, what does good look like, what, you know, what is fair or unfair, and to have those discussions and those debates. Like it's a it's a conversational invitation to say, does this all make sense to you? And if it doesn't, mm-hmm. either it doesn't make sense because it needs to change, or it doesn't make sense because there's something you can learn. Mm-hmm. And either way, I just think like not only does it optimize the dollars and cents of how they flow. And I mean when I say optimize, I don't mean to reduce the overall spend on salary load, although that might be a benefit. I right. mean, optimize against all of our values, all of our values that we that we care about when it comes to compensation. Um, you know, it, it allows that to begin and it builds a competency in the membership that it's not just one person's job to make sure that's true. It's actually mm-hmm. all of our jobs. So mm-hmm. that's kind of my numero uno. What's your numero uno? Mm-hmm. Related? Related. It's about market manipulation. So I've hired a lot of people in my life. And I had an experience in the last couple of weeks where I was talking to a candidate for the ready. And because we do both self-set pay and transparent pay, I had started talking to her about those concepts and that I was going to need her to do that, you know, if she came aboard. And in our last conversation, I asked her what she was thinking about in terms of a default monthly rate. And she told Mm -hmm. me, and it was quite low. Mm -hmm. It was lower than the lowest paid consultant at the ready. And part of my brain, because I've been hiring people for a long time and I'm a efficiency oriented human was like, sweet, (laughs) she's cheap. This is going to be great. And then immediately one second after that, I was like, I can't 
not give her the context around this because her first day she's going to go into the system and see. see exactly what's going on that people with significantly less experience than she has are making significantly more money than she is. And so it really behooves all of us for me to pretty quickly give her more context around what people are making. And I just think in traditional systems, that's not what happens. When somebody comes in and they've been historically underpaid or they're part of a group or demographic that is historically disadvantaged in terms of pay, employers tend to take advantage of a good deal. And transparency just does not let you do that in the same way. And even for someone like me who considers myself to be a conscious capitalist, it was still a good check on me to be like, how would she feel when she sees her peers? Yeah, I love that. I think that's so important. And it it connects to all these ideas of bias, of fairness, of, of, um, you know, feeling motivated and connected. And I, I do feel pretty strongly that um, there's good asymmetry and bad asymmetry. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's not everybody's going to get paid the same amount because not everybody has the same experience and brings the same value, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of asymmetry in, in opaque compensation systems that's based on politics and clubs mm-hmm. and you know different backgrounds and all these things that are just total bullshit. Yeah. And so to be able to just say like, yeah, none of that's going to fly because we're all going to shine a light on it seems right. to me super obvious. And what's really mind-blowing to me is, is that you put this idea in front of seemingly progressive thinkers and leaders and companies and they buck it when the entire U.S. government runs with transparent compensation yeah. and is fine. And right. many, many companies that we studied for Brave New Work do it as well, including some with like people that are not making a ton of money, that don't have a ton of education, that are still able to handle this concept, still right. able to handle the fact that like, we, we each have different value and we should be able to see what that value is and, yeah. and evaluate it and learn from it as a system. To me, that seems so obvious and yet disruptive. And I think the thing folks are afraid of, and rightly so, is not that the other place is so challenging. It's actually the transition. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of like, if you go from opaque to not opaque, then all that unfairness that's probably hiding in the system is going to create disruption for a yep. minute. And right. so I think a lot of people are actually reacting from the place of like, I don't want to deal with that recalibration. Not so much that they're actually saying like, I philosophically am not aligned with the end state. Yeah. And if those are the feelings that one has, it probably is a good signal that you should be looking at what decision you've made that's giving you that feeling. Exactly. The <laughs> the other piece worth hitting around value is there's a there's a pro and a con to that, right? So on the one hand, let's all get clear on what the company actually values. Mm-hmm. I've been in enough systems where it's like, if I'm the person who's responsible for innovation or research, and the person who's responsible for sales is making five times as much as me, I understand what we as an organization care about, and then I can make my own decisions about whether I want to stay in an organization that cares five times as much about top-line growth as it does about its product. That's a decision that's very difficult for me to make if I don't have those numbers in front of me. And you just sense it loosely from (laughs) the vibe, You just kind of know, because like, let's be honest, we all kind of know what the vibe is in those places. The downside or the shadow side of that, of course, is that it is very challenging to wrestle with your 
compensation as a proxy for how worthy you are as a person inside of a system. And having had some of those conversations in my life on being on both sides of them, where someone says, I think I'm worth X. And I'm like, well, not to us. It's a really difficult conversation to have. Yeah, back to ego and identity, right? That's a that's a hard one to stomach, and I see it. I see it in both directions, right? So you see people that thought they were undervalued, and it turns out they're more valued, and there's a boost. You mm-hmm. see it in people that thought that they were actually doing quite well, and then they find out they aren't, and there's like a whole the rug is pulled out from under them in terms yeah. of their identity. Like there's a lot of work to be done there. But but the point is, we tell ourselves stories either way. We We may as well at least tell ourselves a true story. And then to your point, if we don't like the 5X thing, we can either leave or we can advocate and be like, I don't actually think this is fair. And we could potentially govern a change to how we think about that. So like, I love the idea of combining transparency of information, both strategic information and information like compensation and information around operations and profit and all that, because it then gives us the information that we need or the data that we need to start a change process if we notice something that doesn't seem right. Like if we know the strategy, if we know the data, if we know the profit, if we know the comp, then we can say, hey, this is right or it doesn't feel right. And then that engages this, the thinking part of the organization, that hive mind that you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. So I was thinking that the perfect guest to shed light on this topic would probably be Joel Gascoigne from Buffer. Um, Buffer is this social media management platform that's been around for a while, I think seven or eight years maybe, that has some super non-traditional ideas about transparency. And no exaggeration, they share everything from their cap table to what they make to even maybe their sleep schedule, Um, not just with each other, but with everybody. Like you can go on the site and see globally what's going on at Buffer. So uh, when we get back after the break, we'll be joined by Joel. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. Ready, set, go. Hey, everybody. We are back with Joel Gascoigne, founder of Buffer. Joel, welcome to the show. Hey, Evan. Hey, Rodney. It's great to be on the show. So tell us a little bit about Buffer and maybe a little bit about your role there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Buffer is a social media platform for small businesses. So we help uh, businesses to share content on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and other networks, um, get analytics on everything that's being shared, and uh, just really connect better with their uh, audience, their customers and potential customers, and uh, build their brand using social media. Um, so we have a, we have a few different products. Um, and uh, it's a low price point. It's easy to, to get started. Um, and that's what we've been doing for a while. Um, and then the other side is that, you know, as a company, we also try and think kind of as much about how we work as um, what we work on and what we build in terms of products and services and things. Um, so that's been an interesting ride as well. Uh, we've been going about nine years. Um, we're currently 88 people and we're doing about 22 million in annual revenue. Sounds pretty good to me. We've been a customer off and on throughout those nine years, which has been fun. So we know exactly what you're talking about. Awesome. And and you're uh, obviously the founder or the one of the co-founders of the company, right? Yep, yeah, I'm one of the co-founders. Um, there was uh, a, a few of us, and um, but I'm the only remaining co-founder, and I've been the CEO sure. the, for the duration as well. Got it. So. 
Buffer is pretty known, at least in our circles, for transparency, for kind of a, a, a pretty radical take on transparency. So can you tell us just a little bit about why that came to be and how that came to be? Like, what you know, was that true the very earliest days of the company? What's the what's kind of the transparency story for Buffer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are, as you say, um, fairly well known for transparency. We have a lot of different things that we are transparent about. Probably one of the most well known is our salaries or compensation in general is, um, uh, you know, internally transparent, but also externally. So it's it's public information essentially. Um, you can actually <laughs> go and find out the salary of anyone in the team. Um, and then we also, you know, we we have we've had uh, public roadmaps. Um, we have, uh, um, you know, we have open source, but we also have um, in in the team. There's a lot of things that are transparent. Um, we we've also shared our revenue numbers, uh, which I just kind of mentioned. A lot of companies don't do that. Um, so really, uh, you know, one of our uh, six core values is default to transparency, and we really try and kind of go more to that extreme where the default is transparency. I think a lot of companies, the default is um, secrecy, and then it's really thought right. on a case-by-case basis, oh, what should be transparent? Um, what benefits do we get from that? And, whereas we tried to kind of flip that around from a very early stage and say, let's make the default transparency. And then we we do, uh, we, it's not absolutely everything. And um, we have tried a lot of different things and hit some, uh, walls and things that are maybe shouldn't be transparent, but we try and start with that basis and then um, kind of consider, okay, maybe that shouldn't be transparent. Um, I guess how it came about was um, probably from uh, mine and Leo's, uh, my co-founders, initial conversations and values and uh, kind of philosophies. And we, we talked a lot about different things, but I think um, this concept of... Um, just being very open, um, I think, in, in, in a loose way, it's kind of uh, honesty in a lot of ways. And um, I think that's where, where we started from. And um, we just found, you know, I, there's many different, like, kind of situations where we found that it was helpful in the team, um, outside the team, talking with other founders. I found if I sat down and got coffee with another founder and I just shared all of our numbers and all the challenges and all the things we're going through, um, then the other person would kind of do the same and we'd have a just much more productive conversation. Um, so there's kind of like these different, uh, you know, uh, initial uh, kind of beginnings of it. And then um, about uh, two and a half years in to the company, uh, we did a exercise uh, with the team at the time, which is about 10 people, um, to determine and just try to articulate our core values. And it was really an exercise of, okay, like, can we put words to what we believe the values are already? Um, and pretty, and then, you know, everyone could suggest a few of the values um, that they felt like were made sense for us. And I think from what I recall, pretty much everyone um, put transparency down as a value. It was already kind of a thing um, that, that at that early stage in the company um and so then we set it down as one of the uh, values of the company and i think from there it really catapulted us and accelerated us to start to question even more all the different things we were doing can we um, bring an element of transparency be a lot more open about that and that's where shortly after that exercise that's when we uh, did salary transparency 
um, equity started really showing our numbers uh, much more openly and regularly as well. So one thing I'm curious about, Joel, as you talk about that, it sounds like you tried some transparent practices early on and you found that there was value in doing that. But then when you opened it up to the company, this was something that emerged naturally as well. What do you think that's in response to? Like, what's the anti-transparency experience that you think is shared that makes people go intuitively like, yeah, that's right. Let's do that instead. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people that join Buffer, even today, if they join and they're the 85th person, um, most people have experiences of being part of other companies where the default is more um, secrecy and um, things are really kept uh, locked down. And um, there is that sense, I think you kind of mentioned that earlier, of the power that comes with the information that one person mm-hmm. holds versus another person. Mm-hmm. Everyone's had these kind of experiences. I think salaries is one of the things that people have, um, one of the you know key experiences, negative experience people have of the bias that can really creep into salaries. Um, the idea that the company is... Uh, the, the whole negotiation of, uh, process of salaries can really be this idea of can the company get the the lowest possible um, salary <laughs> right. for this person? That's like mm-hmm. that's an exercise of optimization. It, in a lot of ways, it seems rational, but it's to me it seems totally wrong. But I think a, l- a lot of people have those different types of experiences. People are in companies; they don't know how much the company makes. They don't know how much cash that company has in the bank. They're getting stock options, and they have no idea how stock options work or how many overall um, options there are in like stock uh, shares there are in the company. So they have no idea what it even means. Um, There's a lot of these kind of examples. Um, And so I think in that early stage, uh, you know, by, by two and a half years into the company, we had already kind of as founders in the first like group of maybe five people we had been, having a lot of discussions, just bouncing things around and saying, okay, let's put this out there. Let's share this on Twitter or on our blog or something. And um, just kind of like experimenting. A lot of those first few instances of sharing were pretty scary and uh, mm-hmm. very experimental. Um, but I think we started to find our feet and feel really comfortable. And it, it kind of became a um, kind of exciting to say, oh, what else is there out there that people have not? Um, thought about. I remember the f- first time when we shared, when we did salary transparency, everyone said, oh, that's not going to go well, or, you know, <laughs> so many problems with that. We had the same experience. Yeah. What is the rationale for sharing so much publicly versus just inside the company? Because I think a lot of people in our movement are pretty comfortable with like, oh yeah, we share salaries and revenue and you know all these other things internally because we all need to know to be effective. But Buffer is so much more uh, exposed on the public side. What was the thinking there? For me, the, the main driver of that is this uh, kind of keeping us honest, keeping us accountable, um, and then ultimately, I think we're going to do everything we do. We're going to hit a higher level, a higher bar if we share it publicly as well. Um, that's a belief I have that, you know, we put it out there. Um, we kind of have to, it, it makes us want to hit a higher level, you know, if we are going to put it out there anyway. But then once it's out there, it creates this 
opportunity for discussion and um, you know critique and uh, great insights that come out from other people. A lot of people out there have a lot more experience than us on some aspects of different things we're doing in the company. So I've had that experience time and time again where I'll share, um, you know, we'll share something new we're doing or share our numbers and people are really digging in and, and um, a lot of interesting discussions can happen. So I think that's probably one of the, the key things. Um, I do think it keeps us uh, one of one of the things we've always tried for is to kind of just to, to do the right thing, really. And uh, I think that's mm-hmm. something that, that keeps us on track with that. It's funny you mentioned the feedback loops thing, because I've observed that from the outside where you'll post, you know, a PL effectively on Twitter and you'll get like 50 comments of people that are like, I don't think your run rate looks right. Or I'm, you know, this curve seems weird to me or yeah. this should be better than that. And, and it seems like, at least in theory, it could be pretty darn helpful in terms of noticing like things that maybe didn't stand out to you versus your peer group in that, you know, kind of SaaS space. Yeah, totally. I, I have a recent uh, example that I recall quite distinctly. Um, the uh, <laughs> the founder of Mixpanel, Suhail Doshi, um, he, sure. he started really critiquing our um, MRR churn rate and saying, you know, that's too high. You're gonna you're gonna flatline. Mm. You're gonna stall soon. Um, mm. It was a pretty tough critique to receive, but you know, I'm certainly better off for it. Um, the whole team is. We, you know, took it uh, into the in company, talked about it a little bit, and things. Um, it makes you really think, like, oh, are we paying enough attention to this thing? Because we're in it every day, and then we put it out there, and someone that's on the outside, it's kind of easier for them to. Um, to to not be impacted by those things, you know, they have a come in with an outside perspective and and just it some things stand out immediately to to people when they see that PNL essentially, um, and then they mention it and it's it great. goes back to that whole like it goes back to that whole like sense making and complexity thing, which is you just want more sensors. Like I want more, I want more people with more diverse perspectives looking at the data because they'll likely identify something that you know we didn't see before. Yeah, it also reminds me. Aaron and I did an episode around strategy creation, and one of the things that we often see in organizations that we're in and around is a. Uh, just too much insularity. There are just a lot of people talking to each other about the moves that they're making and the metrics that they're tracking. And we, in that, in that ep, talked about some strategies for getting out and having more understanding of what's happening in the environment. But what you're describing, Joel, feels like a pretty easy hack for that, which is like, if you make things <laughs> transparent, pe- people, the sensors in the world will respond and will start to lob uh, feedback and critique and support at you without you necessarily having to do that much to get it. Absolutely. That's been our experience and it's it's amazing. Every time it happens, I'm kind of blown away to a certain extent. Um, one thing I, I, I think is very interesting to go on a slightly different angle or, or dig into is it is this idea of like, okay, how can we get more inputs, you know, put this information right. out there. And I will say our experience has been that 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 is one of the it's like a blessing and a curse in a way mm-hmm. of transparency mm-hmm. because it really is incredible and i think you mentioned you know the example of wikipedia uh, versus in microsoft encarta and i think one thing that struck me with that is that i imagine wikipedia started out 
kind of messy um, mm-hmm. due to that. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of inaccuracies, a lot of issues, and it's really they've figured out the system over time, which works in a totally different way to right. allow for that level of transparency and that number of inputs to actually um, result in a in a better outcome. But you know, in a lot of ways, I think about Microsoft Encarta, and I think, oh wow, like keeping the quality to a certain level, like a lot of these different things must be so much easier with that model. And I think we're we're experiencing some of those growing pains, you know, going from 10, 20 people with a ton of transparency um, to now being almost 90 people um, trying to like maintain that value of default transparency. And we're reala- realizing that it has the approach has to change. We have to evolve over time. And I think one of the key things is that early on, our approach to transparency was really uh, just kind of everyone getting everything. Um, one mm-hmm. of the early things we used, one of the things we did for many years is um, we made emails, uh, we kind of hacked it to make emails fully transparent by saying we set up a number mm. of different email lists and said, CC this email list. Um, whenever you basically just categorize the emails of what you're discussing. And then the thing was like, everyone in the company was on every list. So it wasn't like actually a, you know, the marketing list was like everyone was on that list. It was more, it's more. You invented a, Slack channels basically with email. Basically, yeah. Um, <laughs> and even when we did uh, adopt Slack, we started out with everyone is in every channel because it's like, mm-hmm. okay, everyone getting all that information. And, you know, there is a sense that good things come from that because Suddenly everyone has all the context, but there's certainly a problem of like information overload. Yeah, we talk a lot about push versus pull and the idea that like transparency doesn't mean that everything's push. Exactly. You know, it it really doesn't. So I think that's I think that's totally right. Yeah. Is there is there anything that you used to share internally or externally that you don't share anymore at all? Like did you learn any tough lessons about things that shouldn't be shared? Yeah, one of the most distinctive ones, um, this is from quite a few years ago now, but we, for a period of time, we were really trying to explore everything. And um, I feel like in hindsight, I'm going to mention this and it's going to sound pretty stupid, but we really were trying to (laughs) uh, experiment with everything. So um, we made uh, feedback um, fully transparent within the company, Mm -hmm. just internally. It wasn't public. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I think that's something that, you know, we we fairly quickly realized that that's something that should really happen in a private setting. There's that phrase of like, um, you know, uh, feedback, criticism in private and praise in public. And I think that does make a lot of sense. I think there's, there's human emotions and human nature involved in that. And I think it's more delicate. And um, so... And, you know, we've tried various things to make it a little bit more hybrid where someone could receive feedback and then, you know, that it could be their choice to then share that, which I think is something that has a lot of benefits um, and makes everyone aware that, okay, people are getting feedback. People are trying to improve and, and evolve over time. That's really healthy, I think. But yeah, that's something that ultimately didn't didn't really work out for us. It's funny you say that because we just recorded a feedback episode and one of the main things we talked about was this sort of shift to like, it's directed by the person who wants the feedback. And so if they choose to share like, hey, everybody, I'm working on 
my stage presence. Like, that's awesome. You know, they can choose to go transparent, yep. but having maybe a default to transparent there is a little bit, um, you know, demotivating. So it's cool to hear you say that you actually played with that line because we do the same thing at the ready where sometimes we'll do things that we know are almost certainly not the right way, but just to figure out like, where's the edge yep. and what, you know, what does that teach us about this stuff? So it's cool to have someone else out there in the lab. Yeah, I do think you've got to, you've got to hit those barriers, those boundaries a little bit to really know. One thing I'm curious about, Joel, is when you do some of these experiments, and it sounds like you've had mostly successes and a couple that you've decided to walk back. One of the things that we talk a lot about is that there is the period of changing when you are opening something up for the first time where there is a lot to deal with. And, you know, often there is a cultural impact to that. It sounds like maybe even in the feedback experiment that you were running, uh, I assume that there was some impact to that, which is why you decided to close it again. When you're in the period of transition and people are feeling the feels and maybe uh, there's some discord or some friction or some tension that's arising, what are some of the things that you do in that period before it becomes routine? How do you how do you help the culture process a shift toward feedback? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, I think one thing we really try and do is be uh, available for conversations, listening to people. So if there is something we've introduced, we want to be going through that uh, kind of feedback cycle of, of receiving that information, all the information we need to make a decision on whether it's continuing or stopping or evolving in some way. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I remember we, we definitely went through that with uh, transparent salaries as well, um, both in terms of when we first made it internally transparent and then externally, this kind of this feedback process um, even before you make the change and then after you make the change uh, for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. I think that's really key. Yeah. So Joel, the last question that we ask all our guests has to do with getting practical for, for the listeners. So if somebody is thinking about taking a step with their team or with their organization to go further into a default to open, default to transparent space, what would your advice be? I really believe in starting small. Um, I think you can start small and then uh, really get your team on board and things can start to snowball in a really positive way if you do it that way. Whereas if you try and introduce a huge change, it can um, be like <laughs> jarring. And I think the, the the system can almost reject that, that change. Um, so one of the things I've often suggested is instead of trying to like create whole new content or new things to be uh, transparent about just look at like what are the internal documents that float around that are kept private right now Um, Mm and maybe there's monthly reports from each area or something like that where okay this is kind of passed up the the chain maybe or like shared uh, with a select group of people Um, can more of those types of things be shared with the whole company so that's probably one of the, the key examples that I often go to is those types of documents. Um, I think I really think you could open those up and see some benefits right away due to the additional context that the whole team gets to have. I love that. 
And um, in full transparency, I think we're running out of time. So yeah. I'm going to uh, draw things to a close. Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's a topic I love. So yeah, thanks for involving me. Rodney, always a pleasure. That was fun. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good in the studio. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, an org design and transformation partner to some of the world's biggest brands. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcast at theready.com. We would love to hear your feedback, what's standing out to you, episode ideas, whatever you've got. And if you like what you're hearing, a review would go a long way to ensuring that this show finds the people who need it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.